Good morning, CBC. Andrew said I am Mike, one of the pastors here. Uh, I also want to welcome you. Uh, and like uh, Andrew just told us, we are in a summer series called Encountering Jesus. We will be in Mark chapter 10. So if you want to go ahead and turn there now uh, or flip there on your phone, uh, Mark chapter 10. Uh, but as you turn there, just a reminder of the series, uh, Encountering Jesus is where we're looking at different times Jesus engaged with people. Uh, and every time, radically confronting them and challenging people to uh, a new way of thinking about God, about themselves, about everything. Our story today actually has to do with two disciples who royally put their feet in their mouths with Jesus. But we'll see how Jesus uses it as an opportunity to turn upside down how all the disciples viewed greatness. So let's start actually a few verses uh, ahead of that story. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 32. You can listen as I read Mark 10, 32. And they, Jesus and the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one uh, in your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Oh man, I, I love this story for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which as someone who consistently puts my foot in my mouth, this story gives me hope. <laughs> Because in this story, we see how a request for glory is turned into a lesson on true greatness. Jesus reveals how backwards the world's definition of greatness is from God's. And so as we look at this encounter together, we'll see 
that whenever we encounter Jesus, we encounter a servant. And whenever we encounter a follower of Jesus, we do too. So let's walk together as Jesus talks about the gateway of glory, the greatness of glory, and the gift of glory. So we started this passage today with Jesus and the disciples going to Jerusalem, where Jesus was headed for the final time before taking the cross. And on the way, Jesus tells his disciples, as he had done before, what was to happen, that he would be arrested, condemned, killed, and rise again. Have you ever been talking to someone and you're like telling them something super important and you can just kind of see a glaze go over their eyes? Like a few of you now? No. But so in that glaze, and all of a sudden they just blurt out something that's so unrelated. You're just like shaking your head and all. Like, are you even paying attention? It's like when our family at home has just finished like a rich family Bible time with the kids. And my son looks up to me and says, Daddy, did you know that dinosaurs become oil? <sighs> it's based on a true story. Uh, well, cue James and John. Jesus is telling them about the pinnacle moment in all of human history, the fulfillment of humanity's salvation, the cross and the resurrection. And they're like, uh-huh, say, Jesus, can you do us a solid? Actually, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, friends, if your relationship with Jesus starts off with, Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask, like a blank check, you've already derailed, okay? It's not a good look, and it's not going to work out the way you think it will. But they say to Jesus, give us whatever we ask of you. And as one of the greatest examples of patience in the history of the world, Jesus lovingly doesn't smite them, but instead says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us one to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. What are they asking for from Jesus? Well, let's start by defining that glory that they asked for. So that word glory is the Greek word doxa, and it's a word for like the weightiness of greatness or the highest excellencies, the most splendid radiance. So what James and John were talking about here was when Jesus would establish his glorious kingdom in full. And the full majesty of Jesus will rain down upon this world bringing in the bringing of his forever holy kingdom to earth. So James and John had seen glimpses of this glory in Jesus's life, specifically the transfiguration, where Jesus kind of pulled back his veil a little bit and showed to Peter, James, and John the intensity of his holy glory, a radiance so bright that it left the three in awe and in terror. And so uh, James and John here are saying, when that glory comes in full, we want the next best places of honor and power in that glory, at your right hand and your left, in that glorious kingdom. They had their minds set on the coming glory and wanted their place of greatness in it. And Jesus doesn't chastise them, doesn't tell them not to seek it, but he tells them the gateway, the entry path to that glory is not what they think it is. A few weeks ago, I was driving down the highway 
just kind of outside of town a little bit. It was a little more rural area. Uh, and I passed a turnoff from the highway to a new neighborhood development. And right on the highway was this huge gateway on this hillside, an immense entrance to this neighborhood. And it had a massive sign uh, with like the name of the estate and large boulders and carved stones and landscape trees and manicured shrubs. Literally, this kind of gateway must have cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was the gateway to the neighborhood. And what was this beautiful gateway meant to do? Well, it was to entice you to turn in, to check out the glory of the neighborhood behind it, right? It was kind of like a, a gateway to residential glory. Well, Jesus tells James and John, you've got the glory right, but the gateway wrong. The destination right, but the entrance wrong. It's not what they think it is. He had just told them what awaited him in Jerusalem. But when they ask for glory, Jesus tells them they don't know what they're asking for, and he reveals to them what the gateway of glory will entail. That the gateway is not claiming power, but is embracing suffering. He tells the two, are you able to drink the cup and take the baptism that I'm going to take? What does that mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the cup was more often than not referring to the cup of God's judgment against sin and evil. Taking the cup was taking upon God's holy judgment of sin. And baptism in the Old Testament uh, often referred to being overtaken or covered, usually by calamity. So the cup and the baptism are the same thing, being overcome by suffering. Jesus says, are you able to suffer like I will suffer? And they say, sure thing. And again, in Jesus' gentle patience, he says, you're right. You will. Because even though James and John didn't get it then, they would get it later. That while Jesus would take the cup and baptism of suffering for all of our sin on the cross, once for all, there is another suffering that James and John and all followers of Jesus will share in with Jesus. The suffering not for our salvation, but because we are saved the sufferings of belonging to Jesus in a world that hates him still. The writers of the New Testament consistently reminded the church of the sharing in the sufferings of Jesus with words like this from 2 Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or Peter in 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And in one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful chapter in all of the Bible, in fact, in all of literature ever, Romans chapter 8 the Apostle Paul shares with us this truth and hope when he tells the church, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see that? Not a suffering to save us from our sins. Jesus' suffering did that. But a suffering because we are the saved. It is the suffering for standing for holiness and fighting against sin in this world. It's the suffering of persecution. It's the suffering of spiritual attacks from the enemy. It's the suffering that we experience because we are Christ's because we belong to Jesus, because we live for him as lights for God in a world that loves the darkness. When you first became a Christian, what did you think? That all your problems were going to go away? Well, certainly our biggest problem is gone. The guilt, power, condemnation of our sin and our separation from God, that is gone. And one day, all our problems and sufferings will be gone when after suffering with Jesus through the gateway, we arrive with Jesus in glory. But until then, church, the gateway of glory is marked by suffering. And I wish I could talk about this more, but uh, we have to keep going. We have more things in the story to get to. But the first thing Jesus corrects James and John about when it comes to greatness is the gateway of glory is suffering with Jesus. So as we continue, uh, this seemingly private conversation between James, John, and Jesus didn't stay private for long. The other disciples heard the request of James and John and were not happy about it. (laughs) Again, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to continue his master class on lives of greatness to share with all the disciples and us that if the gateway of glory is suffering, that the greatness of glory is serving. Let's pick the story back up in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the word gets out and the other disciples are like irate. Why are they so mad? Well, perhaps uh, because they thought that maybe James and John were being like sneaky and going behind their backs. Perhaps they didn't think James and John deserved those places of honor, at least not as much as maybe they deserved. Or maybe they were mad because they didn't think about asking Jesus first, like a cosmic kingdom game of calling shotgun. (laughs) Like, I got right hand, I got left hand. Oh, dang. Why were they so irate? Uh, Who knows? Jesus knows. (laughs) So he calls a a holy huddle to tell them all that they are irate because they are still all getting it wrong. They are thinking like the world when it comes to greatness. So Jesus was going to tell them where the true 
greatness of glory is found in serving one another. So he pulls them together and tells them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. He says, you know, you know how this world works. That people try to show their greatness by how much control they have over others in their lives. Greatness shown by authority. And the disciples could look up and see the Roman rulers doing just that, flexing their greatness through their oppression and rule and enforcing of their will upon the people. Jesus says, you know how the world operates. It's survival of the fittest. It's the strong eat the weak. It's the powerful command the powerless. The great lord it over the small. So good thing for us today, the world doesn't work like that now. It's good. No, 2,000 years later, we know it's still the same. Seeking greatness through dominance. From emperors to interns and everyone in between. From D.C. to boardrooms to HOA meetings, to comment sections online, across dining room tables, even in playgrounds. Any place anyone is seeking greatness through forcing their will over others, through getting our way, but not so with you. Jesus says, my followers will live differently, by a different measure of greatness, by a different kingdom, not in getting others to serve you, but in being a servant to others, all others. Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. The word servant, diakonos, is where we get our term deacon. The word slave, doulos, can mean slave or bondservant. Both are words that would have been familiar with the disciples, and their meaning is not lost on us today. Those are the ones at the bottom of the power pyramid. The servants, those who life's calling was to obey a master's will. Jesus is saying, that is where, in Siri, are saying, that is where you'll find greatness. Not at the top of a ladder, looking down on others, but in the bottom, at the feet, looking up in serving. That you are not citizens of this world anymore, but citizens of my kingdom. And my great kingdom is populated by great servants. That the greatness of glory is serving. So at this point, it would be good to ask, okay, so what does a kingdom-minded servant really look like? Like, if that's where true greatness is found, what does it look like to follow Jesus and kind of take on our new job title as servant? Well, like I often say, that there's more time or more to that than we have time for. But to start, let's take a look at two marks of a servant. A kingdom-minded servant is decentralized and devoted. So let's take them one at a time. We'll start with they are decentralized. Now, what do, I, what do I mean by decentralized? Well, when something is decentralized, it means something that was concentrated at the center in one place gets scattered outward broadly. And what does that have to do with being a servant? 
Well, everything. God makes it clear to us that the default posture of our hearts is to be self-focused, self-centralized. Meaning we look at our lives and everything in them through the lens of how does this affect me? How does this help me get what I want? We are centralized on self. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, that all of us, without God's intervention in our lives, are driven by passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are self-centered, self-desire driven at the core. James will tell us how our self-centeredness causes all the problems that we have when he says this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That we can trace every vile practice in the world back to a selfishly ambitious heart. We each have a heart bent on serving above everything else self. It's what the reformer Martin Luther would describe as our state of being as incurvatus in se, or curved inward on oneself, centralized on self. And we will always serve what our hearts are bent towards. And the world tells us, be bent on yourself. Serve yourself. Look out for number one. Your passions, your desires, your ambitions are what you should focus on. And to see every relationship, every interaction, every moment through the lens of how do I get this to work out for me the way that I want? That's why we don't have to be a CEO or politician or manager to have a heart like the world. For any of us, it's any time we bend anything and anyone to suit our desires above theirs. Not so among you. My beloved, we live differently. We turn from being centralized on serving self to being decentralized, focusing away from ourselves and looking to the needs of others above our own. Paul and Peter would tell us, turning away from ourselves and serving others, especially serving the church family, is at the heartbeat of our kingdom community together. Philippians says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Look each of you, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And Peter would say this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Isn't that a beautiful image? A people who are so secure in themselves so set free from slavery to self 
that they can joyfully and humbly serve one another. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of community? It's a glimpse of the kingdom. It's a glimpse of the coming glory. And it's a glimpse of true greatness. When Jesus tells his disciples, be slave to all, it's a servant who is decentralized from self, focused on serving others. And once God begins to do that work in us, turning us away from ourselves and others, the next mark grows stronger in our lives. A kingdom-minded servant is devoted. Now again, let's define, okay? What does it mean to be devoted to something? Well, simply put, whatever we are devoted to is whatever has priority over our lives. It's what we're working for and sacrificing for and striving for. It's what we think about, dream about, long for. At the end of the day, it's whatever we live for. And Jesus, once again, comes along and says, someone longing for greatness in the eyes of God will be a servant with a transformed devotion. So let's go back to James and John's request again at the beginning of our story, if you remember. What they said? They said, Jesus, we want to be at your right hand and your left hand in glory. And all that they got wrong, what did they get right? The coming glory. That this life is short and eternity is long. That our kingdoms are temporary, but Jesus' kingdom is forever. Someone whose life is lived for true greatness, lasting greatness, forever glory, will be devoted to serving the eternal the true kingdom of God that outlasts all other kingdoms of this world. What does this world tell us? You want to be great? Build your kingdom. Prove your worth. And so we try. We spend 40, 60, even 80 years striving, sacrificing, stressing, trying to prove our greatness by building little kingdoms with our names on it. It could be the kingdom of career, of fame, of relationships, of money, of family, of comfort, of whatever. There's a million ways to build a million monuments to our greatness. But you know what we have? After a lifetime of devotion to building our kingdoms, the reality that we've done nothing but build sandcastles on the shore. And when the wave of eternity splashes over our sandcastle kingdoms and pulls back, what's going to be left of all that devotion? All our kingdoms, our greatness. Nothing. Smooth sand. Doesn't sound so great. Jesus doesn't tell us not to be devoted. He doesn't tell us not to long for greatness. He lovingly tells us how to get it. By being devoted to the right thing. His kingdom. That in all things we seek, his kingdom. Our work for his kingdom. Our family for his kingdom. Our finances for his kingdom. Our plans for his kingdom. Our relationships for his kingdom. Our talents for his kingdom. Our everything for his kingdom. 
trading serving our own fleeting, fragile kingdoms to serving God's forever unmovable kingdom. I love how the author of Hebrews encourages us with these words. It says this, Therefore, speaking to the church, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Did you see that? Receiving a kingdom, not building one. And it will never be shaken. A servant is devoted not to building our kingdom, but serving his. So let's get even more specific. What does that look like here in this like self-kingdom building culture of Northern Virginia? Well, just like following Jesus anywhere, it looks and feels backwards. <laughs> because like few places in America, people actually come to this area because they are of the devoted, right? But often over-devoted. In fact, many of us in here are over-devoted. We're overworked, overschooled, overclubbed, overscheduled, over-socialized, overcommitted, overdevoted in every direction. Our calendars and heart rate monitors show it. Because we are trying to we are trying to build kingdoms of greatness just like a godless world. We are devoted, but are we devoted to the things that are still going to matter a hundred, a thousand, a million years from now? Listen, please, there's nothing wrong with work or sports or school or hobbies. Please understand this, but there is something wrong when we are so devoted to serving those things, so busy in building our own kingdoms just like the world, that we can't be devoted to serving God's kingdom. Again, what would it look like here in Nova to be a kingdom-devoted servant? So let me give you a handful of hypotheticals. Being a kingdom-minded servant might mean not taking that promotion and all the power and bonuses and esteem with it if it means pulling you away from serving your family or your community or your church. It might mean not signing your kid up for that next thing if it means cramming their calendars and pulling them away from being devoted to church community. Or it might mean pulling out our personal and family calendars and just wiping them clean, rebuilding, starting with a devotion to committing to the community of our faith family. But for all of us, it means prioritizing what God prioritizes with our lives. Even looking crazy and backwards to this world, even costing us opportunities professionally, socially, and personally because we are devoted to a better kingdom, a truer greatness that will outlast all those things anyway. A servant has a different devotion to serving God's kingdom, not their own. Friends, are you starting to see Jesus's grace in his answer to the disciples? He wasn't calling them to something lesser by serving, but something infinitely greater, 
a life free from the slavery to self and free from wasting our lives building only what will be lost. A servant, someone seeking true greatness, is a life decentralized away from self and devoted to the kingdom of God in all things. All right, so let's hop back into our story. We've seen Jesus flip James and John's understanding upside down of how the gateway of glory is suffering. And then he flipped all the disciples' understanding of the greatness of glory by saying it's in serving others, not being served. But Jesus gives uh, and saves the greatest point of all for last. So as we read again in verse 45, we're going to find the gift of glory is the Son. I'll put it on the screen and I'll read it for us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So after telling the disciples, if you want to be truly great, be ready to suffer and be ready to serve. And then Jesus gives them the greatest convincing argument for the greatness of serving by saying, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is staggering. The gateway of glory is suffering. The greatness of glory is serving. And I, the Son of Man, am both the suffering servant. And I am both your example in living for greatness and your ransom in securing your glory. The gift of glory is the Son. So let's unpack this. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Friends, there's so much here. But for time's sake, the Son of Man, Jesus, came to us. What does that mean? It means he, he didn't come into existence that first Christmas night. Jesus is and always has been God Almighty, second of the Trinity, in all glory from eternity past, needing nothing, completely complete. The one whom angels cry out before in worship, 24-7, 365, in praise of his glory and power, Jesus, who spoke the universe into being, who holds every molecule together right now by the word of his power, the one who holds the keys to death and Hades, who has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth, the lamb who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory, the one that one day every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess he is Lord, came to serve. What greater argument could we make for the greatness of serving? Jesus came to serve. Sit in that. (laughs) He is the gift of glory, the gift of our example to follow. That if even the Son of Man came to serve, who are we to think that we're above that or too busy? And if the Son of Man came to serve then serving like him is a gift to be honored. It's an unmatched privilege to follow his example with our lives. There is no greater honor than to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And it says, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. How much did Jesus serve us? All the way. Gave his life. And it says, as a ransom. A ransom is something paid to release someone else from slavery or being trapped. So Jesus' life given as our ransom, our gift to free us from the slavery of sin. The cup and the baptism, the judgment of God poured out on Jesus on the cross. Our sin, our condemnation, our deserved judgment. He served us by it being poured out on him, our servant king, until he paid our ransom in full by dying in our place. And this is the ultimate gift of glory. That Jesus took our condemnation, our sin for us, and trades with us his glory, his reward, his perfect, perfect sinlessness. The glory that awaits us because we have been ransomed is a gifted glory bought for us by Jesus' death on the cross, given to us by faith when we believe, and secured because our ransomer who died rose again and rose showing his glory over sin, his glory over death, and showed the glory that awaits us in him. And it's through this ransom by this suffering Savior that we are born again. The only way to have a true servant's heart that lives for God and his kingdom is we need a new heart, free from sin, ransomed away from self-centeredness. This new heart, like God's kingdom, is not something we make, but we receive. It's a gift that only comes by faith in Christ, by allowing Jesus to serve us, to trust that we can't save ourselves, but need the rescue from our sin, the ransom that only Jesus can give by his death, life, death, and resurrection for us. And the moment we believe, we are made new. New lives with new hearts, living for a new glory. Willing to walk the road of suffering with him. Seeking the life of greatness through serving with him and awaiting the gift of glory we will receive in the coming kingdom with him. Jesus, the Son of Man, our servant, our ransom, our Savior and King. So friends, let me ask you, what is a great life to you? What the world tells us, a life centered on self and our ambitions and devoted to building our sandcastle little kingdoms? Or is a great life one that encounters Jesus, the Son of Man, our ransom paid, our servant king, and trusts him? When he says, the glory follows the suffering, the greatness is found in serving. Because whenever we encounter Jesus, we encounter a servant. And whenever we encounter a follower of Jesus, we do too. So let's pray. Jesus, we know 
that we will spend eternity without exhausting the wonder, awe, and depth of your greatness and your ransom of us. That while we were unworthy, hardened in heart, selfish, seeking our own passions, you came and rescued us by taking the cross we deserved, by rising again to give us new lives. And as our great servant king, give us those hearts that are willing to walk the road of suffering with you on the path to glory, that are willing to find the greatness in not getting others to serve us, but how we can serve you and serve others. And Lord, let us shine like lights in this dark world, proclaiming a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom of glory, where the Son of Man who ransomed us will be with us and us with him forever and ever. Amen.